So we are in James. Um, James is in the New Testament. It is right after Hebrews. James is the half-brother most likely of Jesus, but we don't know that. Um, The interesting thing about the letter that James writes is that James is not concerned with uh, how you become a Christian. He's not concerned with how you begin to be a follower of Jesus. What James is concerned with is how you're going to go about doing it. What are you going to do? What does a servant look like? In fact, James in verse 1 of chapter 1 opens up by saying that he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the theme that we've kind of been connecting ourselves to because it really is what James is all about. It is about being a servant. And so in some ways, as we've said in the past here, is that James is sort of the old servant and we are people who are coming to kind of learn what we're supposed to do, what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Over the last um, few weeks, but in particular last week, in chapter 3, James starts dealing with teachers, and he starts dealing with tongue and how we use our tongue and how we talk. And In a cursory reading of chapter 3, you might think that it only has to do with you if you're a teacher and if you're somebody talking to people about stuff and what they should do and instructing them and those kinds of things. Um, But I want to give you, uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to put this into your head. You are a teacher. I'd like to quickly um, jump over to 1 Peter chapter 2 and read to you verse 9 to kind of illustrate who you are, because this is important, as you begin to think about being a servant and what James is inviting you into, the Apostle Peter kind of gives us a big picture of who we are as people who follow Jesus and what we're called to. Verse 9 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So if you decide to follow Jesus, if you decide to take on Jesus' identity, the thing that you become is a priest, and your job is to declare. So regardless of where you are in the community of God, you are a teacher You are someone who has something to declare. In fact, what's beautiful about being a follower of Jesus is that you do have something profound to offer me and I have something profound to offer you. It's Our place has been flattened out. There isn't a hierarchy of things. And so you are a teacher. I mean, even in my family, like you see that the youngest, you know, Elliot still has somebody to teach until the dog was given away, right? He, then he no longer has anybody to teach. But we all, have, we all have this. We have something to offer. We can declare, we can tell how we move from darkness and into light. And there's an instruction in that. And so last week, Mark talked about the tongue and what we do with the tongue and what happens. And... In particular, I'd like to just 
latch on to two verses. We're going to talk about James chapter 13 through 18, but I want to jump into chapter or verse 11 um, and read it to you because it really was the theme of what Mark was saying last week, and we're going to kind of hang our hat on that. So verse 11 of chapter 3 of James says this, Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. What Mark began to talk about to us as he kind of looked at this picture was that if we are people who are consumed with Jesus, then the thing that people will experience around us is fresh water. That the stream that we engage in, Jesus, is, will produce fresh water. But if we are people who are finding other places to kind of plug into, then what we're going to produce is salt water. And what salt water does is kills and destroys. And so what, um, what Mark talked about, and I, I want to kind of, this is where we're going to kind of rest a little bit and think through talked about Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, to kind of illustrate this idea of um, broken cisterns and, and well, to illustrate this idea of fresh water versus salt water. And verse 13 of Jeremiah in the Old Testament, Jeremiah is a prophet, and he says this, My people have committed two sins, and this is God talking. They first have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So what the, the idea that um, Mark kind of laid out for us was that when you and I like, plug ourselves into Jesus, the living water, people around us feel refreshed, right? And when we plug ourselves into other places, cisterns that we have dug, places to fill up the thirst that we have, people around us start to die. People around us feel stifled and suffocated because of where we're finding our source of life. And what he said is, is this predominantly happens from our tongue, the way that we communicate with each other, the kind of language we use, the way that we talk. Our tongue becomes this thing that either brings life or it brings death. So, we're just going to jump into verse 13. So, I want you to hold in your, your mind this idea that where we find our source will dramatically impact people's experience of who we are and how refreshing we are or how destructive we are. So verse 13, James is continuing kind of this thought. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Okay, Who is wise and understanding among you? Some translators translate this, who is a sage and who is a real teacher? Okay, So who is a, a wise person in the community and who is a sage? And who is a, 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 a wise teacher? Who's a teacher? Who's a sage? Now most of us would say, oh no, that's not me. But let me tell you, the answer is all of you. So to answer the question, who is wise and who is understanding, the goal 
is for all of us to say, well, that's me. I'm wise and understanding, which none of you probably would say. If I asked you, like that's not something we all raise our hand for. We don't put it on our, you know, Facebook, you know, status. Like that's not the thing we say, wise and understanding. I guarantee you, I'm pretty sure none of you have that on your Facebook. Who? They, they may hide that. Right, because they are wise. Their last name is wise. Okay, so there may be a few. <laughs> it took me a while to get that one. All right, so yes. Um, but it's not something that we would all put on there. But James says, I think James is, we're all supposed to be that, and so he's going to tell us what that looks like. He says, let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. So what he says is, the way that you're going to know a wise person, a sage, and somebody who's a real teacher, is first by the way they live their life, and by their deeds done in humility. And so the way that the person lives out their life is that all the things that they do are done in humility. A lot of translations translate this as gentleness. The picture that he's trying to draw here is that people who are wise and understanding have mastered strength and confidence in balance with gentleness. Okay, So somebody who is a wise teacher who's a sage, what you're going to experience is that they have a confidence and a strength that's married with gentleness. Okay, And then when you are around somebody who has strength and gentleness in perfect balance, you experience life. You experience being refreshed. Okay, And so the goal of people who are followers of Jesus, who are servants of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, is to become people who have strength and confidence perfectly balanced with gentleness. Okay? That that's the goal and objective of a servant. Now, I, I just want to go quickly back to this picture of a servant that James puts in here. James is very serious about the idea that he is a servant. And so when he's talking about these ideas of, of what it looks like to be a sage and what it looks like to be a real teacher, um, this is not something he's saying flippantly. And, and last time I talked, he talked about how he gets, if you read James, you're like, man, calm down just a little bit. Like he gets very excited when he's like, no, your deeds have to match your faith. Like you can't just say you believe this and then not do anything. Are you guys crazy? Like he gets worked up because he takes this very seriously. And the call is, if you're going to be a servant, we've got to take this seriously. And the reason, when he calls himself a servant, he's putting himself in the line of Abraham and Moses and Joshua and King David. Right? If you're like a, a collector of like those playing card games where you, you know, have characters and you play out battles and things like that, well, what James is saying is there's a new pack out, for those of you who know what that means, there's a new deck of cards, and I'm in it, Right? And the call is for you to be in the next edition, right? That, that you can be someone whose gentleness and strength is powerful. But he's now going to kind of, if up to this point in James, it's kind of been just introducing us to what it looks like to be a servant, handing out the uh, employee's hand guide. This little section that we're about to read really gets into the meat of things. He wants to explain to us where Godly wisdom comes from 
and where false wisdom comes from and how we can kind of nurture these two things so that we can be people who hold strength and gentleness and balance and are people who bring a refreshment to the people around us. So verse 14 says, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast about it or deny the truth. So he says, the goal is for all of you to be teachers, to be wise and understanding. The way you do this is to go out and live your life in a way that holds these two things in balance. But if you harbor, some translations just say have, but this word harbor literally means that bitterness rises up in your heart or a bitter envy or selfish ambition. And instead of just sort of letting it pass on by, you grab a hold of it. And the harder it pulls, the more you bring it in. And so what James is saying is that the first step into this process of holding gentleness and strength and confidence in balance is that you have to actually admit that you harbored things. That part of being wise is being willing to admit that you harbor things. That you nurture things that are dark and evil. Right? That's part of being a servant, is this offering up of what you harbor. Being willing to talk about it. And we'll kind of address that a little bit more in just a minute. Verse 15 says, Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Now, most of you probably know this, but those of you who don't, like this summer has kind of been an interesting health um, journey for both my wife and I. So, you know, at the beginning of July, I ended up with kidney stones. And then from that process, my blood pressure was all over the place and Things have kind of calmed down and all my tests have, you know, come out okay. Um, and, you know, with Sue, like she had surgery on her foot and then her other foot started acting up and then she had all this arthritis stuff going on. And so you go to the doctor and you know what the doctor does? He listens to your symptoms and he looks at the symptoms and he begins to try to go backwards to, the dis- to what actually is the source of all these symptoms, right? What's going on? Well, James tells us here what the actual source of our symptoms are, where you and I end up drinking and why we keep producing salt water. Like if the symptom is that people are dying around us and we're embittered and we have selfish ambition, what, where are we actually going? What kind of wells are we actually digging? Okay. And so he lays out these three wells. The first well is earthly wisdom, right? The first place that you and I go, instead of going to the living water, is to earthly wisdom. And to kind of make earthly wisdom just kind of give you its motto, it's what is in it for me, right? That is the question that we all ask when we buy into what the world has to say to us. Life is about exchange, what is it in it? What's in it for me? If I do this for you, what will I get out of it? How, what, 
how am I going to benefit? And connected to this is that most of us kind of have this sense of being narcissists, right? We like to look in the mirror. We like to look in the mirror, even if like our, our perception of ourselves is like, oh, I'm not very pretty, I'm not very handsome, I don't like the way I look, we still like to look in the mirror, right? We're obsessed. We kind of think that maybe if we go back, we'll look different. Well, maybe something will have changed, right? And as we get older, we begin to rationalize our appearance. Well, maybe I kind of like that part of me now that I didn't like when I was younger. Like, I'll give it some narrative and story to it. And then it'll make me cool, right? Like we, but then we go back to the mirror. But it's not just physically. Like we're constantly going back, looking at our own reflection, wondering how we can get the world's approval. What, how do we match up? If we're doing these things, what's it going to do for us? And so we go drink in that well, and what it produces is bitterness and envy and self-ambition. The second one is unspiritual. Right? This, the, and all that James is talking about here is he's talking about the thing that you and I have in common with animals, our impulse control. Right? Now, I've talked to a lot of you, and, and, the, and this is true about me, um, is that there are certain things in our life that it, if it's in front of us, we will consume it. So if it's alcohol and it's in the house, we'll consume it. We have no... We have no impulse control. If it's drugs and it's in the house, we'll consume it. If it's Doritos, it's in the house, I consume it. Right? I, over the last 60, 70 days, I've lost like 20 pounds. In that process, I've learned that I can't have Doritos in the house because in that part of my life, I share this, imp, this animal thing where it's in front of me, I should eat it, and then I should eat it all. Right? Okay? And so, but, but we're all caught up in that, right? We have this frustrating thing in us that we give in to our impulse, that we're, we have this common thing with animals, that we're just, we, we're giving it, we give in, right? We're just, I got to do it. And we know what it is. All of you know, oh yeah, there's a thing. For some of us, it's very, you know, it seems minor, but it isn't because it consumes us. And what it produces is bitterness and envy and selfish ambition, and evil deeds. And the third one is demonic. So these are the three cisterns that we dig in. And this word here that that is translated demonic in the English, if I remember correctly, it's not anywhere else in the Bible. And what the way that James is using this word, is he wants people to know that this is the darkest evil. Like, this is not just like, oh yeah, like Satan is part of evil, and so like he influenced. No, this is like, we find our life, we find where we go dig for something in darkness and evil. And the way that we experience this in life is usually it just begins with listening to things that aren't true. But then what happens is that you and I end up in a dialogue with, with the enemy a real dialogue in our head with the enemy, and the dialogue begins to look like Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 2. It starts looking like this dialogue where we're like, no, no, maybe maybe we are God. Maybe God, God is holding out. Maybe God really is just this person who's constantly 
trying to keep us from all the good things. And why on earth are, like, is everything so messed up? And we begin to tumble down into this rabbit hole of darkness and oppression because we so get caught up with the idea that maybe God just is holding out on us. Maybe God is not really who he says he is. And we open this door to basically live out this life of lies. And what happens is bitterness and envy and evil deeds, these become the symptoms that we start experiencing. Now, these are the wells we dig, right? This is where, where wisdom that doesn't come from heaven is produced. But it all has something at the core that's very important. And that is that we're all, there's a thirst. You don't go to drink from the living water or from any of these broken things unless there's a thirst. I don't impulsively eat Doritos because I think they taste good. Because they don't after a few of them. Right? I I'm trying to numb something because there's a thirst inside of me that keeps saying to me, something's not right. And if I could just get people to tell me how to get it right, or if I ate these things or did these things to get it right, or maybe if I just gave God the finger and went this way, it would, it would deal with this thirst. Because you know what? All of us know deep down inside something's wrong in this world. And even though we know God has invited us into a relationship with him, it still feels really thirsty. And so we go after earthly wisdom, wisdom that's built on impulse, wisdom that's demonic and dark, because we have this thirst and we want an immediate fix. We want an immediate fix in things. And so James lays that out for us. He says, okay, here's where you go. This is how salt water is produced. This is what happens. And the goal of a priest and the goal of a servant is for people around the servant and the priest to actually be refreshed and restored, not to be stifled and dehydrated. Verse 17 says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So James kind of lays out, okay, well, this is what happens when you drink from streams that produce salt water, from things that are just basically sucking sand. But if you're going to engage the living water, This is what it's going to look like. If you're going to engage heavenly wisdom, the first thing is that it's pure. I started thinking about this. Okay, so what is this pure thing? Like, what does he mean by this? What's pure? And this word literally means somebody who can approach God. Like, they have a rightness so that they can approach God. But as I process, like, what is pure? What kept hitting me in the head is the gospel is what is pure. The gospel is pure. But a lot of times when we think about the gospel, and this is a good way to think about it, we think about it as Jesus was God. He was born. He lived out a life that we couldn't live. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven. Okay, I got it. I'm in. So what's, what am I supposed to do? 
And what James is saying is, no, no, no. It all begins in Jesus' story. And what you and I begin to be obsessed about, if we go after earthly wisdom, if we go after our impulses, and if we go after what's demonic, if that is our motivation, like if that's where we're headed, the thing that, that happens is it's, it's about us and an obsession with the thirst. And what James is saying is, no, 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 no. If you're going to produce water, it has to be about Jesus. You have to be about Jesus. The problem is you and I don't know how to be about Jesus. We don't know how to be about Jesus. Right? Most of us feel like maybe Jesus is, we feel disconnected from him. We don't know how to connect. And part of that, I'm going to argue, is that we have no imagination. Right? You have, we have lost our imagination. Because part of being in a relationship with God is not imagining something that's false, but allowing your mind to begin to put yourself into the story of God. You have to sit on the, on the mountain and listen to the Beatitudes. When the Lord's Prayer is given, you have to taste the dirt that Jesus is, as he's telling all the, giving you this prayer. You have to be there when the woman who's caught in adultery, when Jesus looks her in the eyes and says, go, I don't contemn you, go and sin no more. Like, you have to be there sitting in the middle of the day in the hot, um, you know, whatever, most likely summer, at a well where Jesus is talking to a woman that no man would be talking to. And that you have to be part of that dialogue. You have to be standing there with John while Jesus is being crucified. And Jesus looks down at John and says, please take care of my mom. We have to be in that story as Jesus sweats blood and his disciples fall asleep. We have to be sitting next to Peter as he denies Jesus and looks Jesus in the eye and says he never knows, knew him. wasn't part of him. We, and to do that, we have to use our imagination. We have to, to, to live in that. We have to begin to have a dialogue with God in that. We have to sit at the cross and realize that Jesus died for our brokenness. We have to sit there. We have to let it rest on us. And the problem is, is that we're so... We're moving. We're constantly moving. You know you all have thought about what you need to do after church. right? you got a plan on how you're going to get your kids to bed. You've processed it out, and that's okay. But that's where we're living. We are always living in the future and not in the present and not in a place where we are encompassed in what is pure, which is the story of Jesus and how our story connects to that. Because what is our job? To declare how we move from darkness to light. You can't do that unless you know Jesus' story inside and out. Not unless you're part of it. Not unless you're engaged in the gospel. But we have to practice that. It's not, it's not something that we learn overnight. Now, James goes on to explain the result, I think, of understanding that God's wisdom, the wisdom of heaven, is pure. That it rests in the gospel and that he tells us what it looks like. First, he says that it's peace-loving. People that are consumed with the gospel, with the purity of God's wisdom, what you will experience is people obsessed about having right relationship. 
The fruit of engaging with the gospel is that when you offend me, hurt my feelings, I go and talk to you. That I engage with you. That I am concerned about us having a relationship together. That when I'm connected to the gospel, I'm willing to be uncomfortable in relationship with other people. When I'm disconnected with the gospel, I don't really care about you at all. Second thing here that he says it's an experience of living water is that somebody, godly wisdom is considerate. And this word actually is a word that's difficult to translate. So if you go look at a bunch of translations, they will translate it differently. But the way that Aristotle explained this word is that this word literally means justice and better than justice. Or giving mercy when the law fails. Right? To be considerate. So the next time you tell your child you need to be considerate, what you're actually asking them to be is to give mercy when the rules are not giving mercy. Right? That's what being considerate is. That that's what you will experience, is that when you are oppressed by things, people come alongside you and offer you mercy. The next thing it says here is submission. And literally what it just means is that you listen to other people with the willingness to be changed. Which I think is is really important. Most of us, and this got talked about in James, I mean, last week, I think even Mark addressed this, is that we're always, when we listen to other people, we're not actually listening, we're thinking about what we're going to say next. Like, so someone's talking to us, and they're telling us a fun story, or they're telling us what God's been doing, and you're like, wow, God's done the same thing in my life, and I'm going to say blah, 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 because that really connects to what they're saying, and it seems like that's really cool, and I'll feel connected to them. Like, we're going, instead of being like, huh, I wonder what they're saying, and how can I be changed? Right? Or politically, how many of you sit in a political conversation with somebody who disagrees with you and says, I'm going to listen to you with the willingness to have my mind changed? No. No, I know, right? But that's actually a result of being caught up in the gospel. Is that you listen to people with the willingness to be changed by what they have to say and who they are. The next experience, what living water actually looks like, is that people are full of mercy and good fruit. And here's this, you know, mercy, we all know what that means. Like, and, and the way it's demonstrated is that like if somebody's in trouble, like their home was flooded, it's not their fault that their home was flooded. We should all help them, right? We show them mercy. You know, somebody loses their job and they need some extra money, we show them mercy. We give them some extra money. Well, we help them out, however. But Christian mercy and the good fruit of Christian mercy is that, and what happens, what godly wisdom looks like, is that I actually help you when you don't deserve it. When it's your fault that you're in trouble. You messed up. I messed up. And yet you show mercy. That the, uh, the living water that the community of God offers to each other and to the outside world is that we care for one another regardless of our stupidity. Right? Think about that. that that's a lot harder. Easier to say, harder to do. The next thing it says here is that this living water, this wisdom, is impartial and sincere. Which literally basically means it doesn't waver and it's not fake. It's authentic. 
this is, I don't know if you've, this is what, when you're around people who are impartial and sincere, who never waver and aren't fake when they're authentic, it is so refreshing. It, it tastes so good to be in their presence. You, when you leave them, you feel the change, right? And the call for our community and the thing that Paul, I mean, that James is asking us and inviting us into as servants who pursue living water instead of these broken cisterns is that we would become people that as we come in on a Sunday evening, as we do all the different other things we do, that it would be refreshing to be here. That we would, that, that it would, it would be like sitting next to a very cold stream and drinking deeply. That we'd actually, when you walk away and you go home, you would feel refreshed, but you would know the difference. That you would know that you have walked out of your community. That, that you would taste it, it would be tangible because of how authentic people are. How, how they're not fake. How they're willing to be honest and sincere about who they are and what's going on and how they engage And last, he kind of pulls us around in verse 18. He says, Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. And so basically, he just comes back to this one single idea, is that people who engage in the purity of God, people who are willing to become consumed by the gospel, are actually people who are consumed by having right relationship with one another that they are about engaging each other in a way that brings righteousness, right? So how do we do this? Well, I actually think James, in this little passage, gives us the clue. It's the clue that most of us don't want. The way that you and I begin to move away from our cisterns and into an imagination of the gospel is confession. The reason that we come here on Sunday night, part of it is to confess our harboring. And the call of James is if we're going to be servants, if we're going to be people who take this seriously, if we're going to be priests to declare a movement from darkness to light, then we have to be a people who confess what we harbor. That means you actually have to look inside. And Jesus, in in Matthew 23, has this little dialogue with the Pharisees. And the thing he says about the Pharisees is, look guys, you clean the outside of the cup, but the maker, the creator, made both the inside and the outside. And if you do not address what's on the inside, the outside is just going to be deadly salt water. That you are going to be so salty that nobody, like nobody's going to feel refreshed around you and you're not going to feel refreshed. And the where that begins is with this confession of harboring. What are you harboring? And, and he offers that what we most harbor is simply bitter envy and self-ambition. But that's what we're harboring. But it comes out in, in very practical ways. So, I want our community, I long for our community to be a place where people come in and as we go out, that people are refreshed, that we are a people of living water. But that means we have to be a community of confession, right? Let's be a community of confession. So I'm just going to, what time is it? Six what? 16 after, my goodness. 
Those announcements run forever. Anyway, I'm just going to ask, ask you to give me five minutes. We're not going to stand up and confess, unless you want to. We can all do that. Now, I want you actually, we're just, I'm going to go sit down, and I want you to just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart and talk to you about what you're harboring. And then I want you on a piece of paper to write down a person's name. Not a person you have something wrong with, but a person that you can safely confess to. And I want you to either tonight or later this week, though I would encourage tonight if they're here, to go confess to them. To say, look, this is what I'm harboring. This is the thing that's eating me that I won't let go of. So I'm going to go sit down. And we're going to spend some time in silence.